So if you would, please introduce yourself, sir. Hi, I'm James Gavinacci, and I write on um, Fourth Generation Warfare uh, at a website called uh, 4GW dot dot dot. I'm a former um, uh, senior civilian uh, analyst. I worked for the Department of the Army, spent about 18 years in Europe. Not all of it for the, for the government, but bulk of it. I spent four years in Bosnia uh, on the um, intelligence staff of, of the Stabilization Force. I was the head of... Uh, special projects, although I wasn't there continuously for four years, it was cubably for four years. So I, I, I saw ethnic conflict in uh, Yugoslavia in, in the post-war, but I followed the war um, from uh, Washington, D.C. And, and, the, and, the, and the Joint Task Force uh, in Naples. So what is fourth generation warfare? Well, fourth generation warfare was written up by uh, William Lind in the uh, Marine Corps Gazette back in 89, and then he did a second article in 1994. And what he argued was that it's a contest between a non-state actor and a central government in which the non-state actor could be promoting um, or be based on rooted in a religion, a race, an ethnicity, and they are contesting the legitimacy of the central government. And they are attempting to switch the loyalties of the citizens of the country from the central government to the non-state actor and bring about the destruction of the central government. Using what type of methods? Okay, so it's actually it's actually a hybrid of methods, principally in, in, in the first stages, um, psychological warfare, manipulation of the news, manipulation of uh, documentaries, but it also contains within it the use of, of terrorism and violence. And if you read William Lynn's work as it progressed over time, it became increasingly violent, wanting to hang, for example, French Muslims in France. So you'd have actually ethnic cleansing or police mass murder. And his book, Victoria's novel, his fourth generation warfare novel, ends in a racial civil war in America with, with tens of millions of deaths. When you're talking about a non-state actor manipulating the media, would this be, you're talking about social media influence campaigns? Well, when he wrote, when he wrote in 1989 and 1984, of course, there were no social media, but he was, he was talking about then, you know, the use of television, movies, documentaries, you know, all kinds of media, anything that you could use to manipulate a population. Okay, so what would be an example in the United States where a non-state actor was uh, engaging in this kind of media manipulation? Well, one of the first to do it um, was the uh, the Christian Patriot Militia Movement. They, of course, you know, they were uh, they they considered the government to be uh, the New World Order, which is you know a, a term to delegitimize the federal government. But then they produced all sorts of videos or documentaries to delegitimize the government. You know, they produced at least two two on, on Waco, for example, which was public relations disaster for the, for the FBI and DOJ. But they, they began using videos. Um, Stephen Bannon, has his company has produced a dozen documentaries that are basically disinformation. Dinesh D'Souza has produced movies 
that delegitimize Obama, delegitimize uh, the federal government, you know, via documentary. So, I mean, this is ongoing. During uh, when Clinton when Clinton was president, what was the company? I think it was called Matriciana. They had the, the Clinton body cam to delegitimize Clinton, you know, as as a head of a you know a murderous crime family. Would it be fair to regard what is happening now in the Middle East with Hamas and Israel as fourth generation warfare and the way that they use social media to try to delegitimize the Israeli government? Hamas is a non-state actor, right? You know. And it uses all kinds of media to try to delegitimize uh, Israel. And Israel is, is counterattacking through social media to build up its moral basis uh, with populations not only in Israel, but in the United States uh, and in Europe and around the world. We see something very similar taking place, however, with, between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And we also see China using social media in similar ways. But these are state actors. So is there terminology for when it's a government doing the same thing? You know, I don't think um, just because it's state actor to state actor doesn't mean it's not fourth generation warfare. There are other terms that have been used for, for state versus state, like hybrid warfare. Uh, that the Russian Jews and then the Chinese have a different term I can't remember off the top of my head. The basics, you know, the basics of fourth generation warfare are to change the loyalties of, of citizens. And in a sense, you know, the, the Russians have been trying to, with Ukraine, is to deny that they're a country and deny that they're an actual people. So that's an effort at delegitimation. You listed several different avenues of attack and uh, media manipulation being just one of them. What are some of the other ways that fourth generation warfare plays out? Well, you know, Linda's written that if you have a, a, a mass shooter, a mass killer, right, and he publishes a manifesto, and then subsequently that manifesto is read by another mass killer who then goes out and murders Jews, murders Sikhs, murders Muslims, um, Hispanics. And then publishes his manifesto. He keeps going on the chain. He goes, "Those are fourth generation warfare killers." So terrorism is certainly a part of fourth generation warfare. Um, kidnapping of governors, like they wanted to kidnap um, Governor Whitmer of, uh, of Michigan, that is a fourth generation warfare tactic. Um, threatening um, FBI agents, you know, with assassination. That's a tactic that came from Mike Vanderbilt, who's a fourth gen who was a fourth generation uh, proponent. Uh, he's he, he's deceased now, but he wrote a novel in which the uh, the militia there attacked a fusion center, mm -hmm. um, attacked or not, assassinated U.S. attorneys, FBI officials. So assassination attacks on on government institutions or, or, or organizations. All part of this. Social media seems to have made fourth-generation warfare effective. I'm thinking specifically about, for instance, in the wake of October 7th, where we've seen a lot of activists, many of whom are, are merely in favor of Palestinian human rights, but then you do have a subset within that of people who are openly pro-Hamas. And I've, I've seen some speculation uh, that perhaps there's an influence here coming from TikTok. For example, you do have some control or some influence. I can't really discern or unravel the degree to which you know China may or may not be actually ha uh, having a direct influence on this. But we do see uh, people in America supporting movements, supporting groups that are that supporting terrorism. So, you know, um, 
to a degree, part of that is simply because of the way that the optics play into these the the colonizer, colonized, oppressor, oppressed, and and racial aspects of perceiving Israelis as white, and those things are playing a factor. But I think social media is is a, a an issue here, and so it feels to me as if we're already at a stage where we're seeing some some of the successes of fourth generation warfare. We're, we're it's not so much that we have to worry about this threat that could take place, but it's a battle that's already being waged and we're already in some ways losing it. So what is the response? Do we ban TikTok? Do we, uh, um, how do we fight back when the enemy is coming at us through our own devices into the minds of our youth? And it's not in a violent way. So it makes it, it makes it a bit harder to justify. So when you say something like ban TikTok, you know, and people say, what, that's ridiculous. It's just a bunch of silly dancing videos. What, you're overreacting. What's the approach here? Well, I'm not an expert on technology. I, I get that. And at, at 71, I'm not, you took a turn to me <laughs> for, for expertise on, on social media. But I, I, I like TikTok. So, I mean, just let me just preface that. I like TikTok and I wouldn't be for banning it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the social media companies, their algorithms are, are, are a secret. Nobody really knows what they're, what they're boosting. And so that, that's a concern. But I would, you know, when I look at that problem, I'm struck by the research that Kate Starbird has, has done over the years where she was looking at how conspiracy theories were generated and uh, propounded on Twitter. And what she, what she found is that it was very participatory. You know, something something starts. Okay, it may be a state actor, it may be uh, a terrorist group. You know, somebody somebody starts something on on Twitter, for example, or TikTok, and and then other people play into it, add to it, you know, subtract from it. You know, they they participate in in constructing this this new narrative and just keeps going on and on and on with time. And so, you know, it's an old problem. How do you, how do you combat it? I think you, you look at, you understand that first of all, you're in an information war. You're in a fourth generation war. Understand what the objectives are. And then you have to construct narratives that appeal to people. You have to construct, you know, what is your target audience on social media? What's the message you're trying to get out? And then you have to actively try to do something about that. I, and that's that's not my expertise, but I mean, you have to you have you you have to engage. I don't think um, banning Twitter or banning TikTok or you know some other social media is really the way to do it. Is you have to if you if you have a, a, a righteous fight like Israel has, and there's there's no doubt about that, then Israel has to ramp up, uh, or the United States as well, and other countries ramp up the defense of Israel and defense of of, of, of the West against this barbarism that's coming out of Hamas. Mm-hmm. So part of what you were you're explaining here is that there's a there's a coordinated core to this, but then there's a an organic sort of shell that builds up on top of that and the organic shell is something that's you know not really in control. It's just individuals who happen to come across something on on social media and they react as uh, yeah, naturally. I think, I, you know, I was struck by one of your articles. I think you used the term I'd never heard the term before. But it was um, discursive force. Did you use that term? Were you quoting somebody? Or yeah, yeah. Okay. So you get this fourth generation warfare conflict going. This information operations going, where immediately after October seventh, you know the most rabid, 
Hamas people were out there talking about genocide against the Palestinians, that the attack didn't happen, the babies weren't beheaded, you know, etc. And then that starts the organic part where other people start coming in, that, that discursive force you have where the, the identity politics that you wrote about and other people have written about start coming into play. And so you you take you take the side of Hamas, not because you know because you're I mean, it's very hard to difficult for me to say, but that, not because you, you love seeing Jews being killed, but because Hamas is on your side. Because they have the because they've been able to formulate a, a winning narrative for whatever your your identity politics happen to be, and it fits into that narrative in a way that that you that allows you to think of them as uh, a resistance movement. Right, and you and you in one of your articles, I think it was one of your articles, you you had there was somebody who quoted Judith Butler. You know the the, the queer theory um, mm-hmm. case, and you know she was saying that Hamas is a progressive movement, and it's like yeah, our, I quoted her because I was I was trying to highlight that exactly what we're talking about now. Yeah, well, I mean she you know, says here's Judith Butler, a very influential person on queer theory, transgenderism, saying that Hamas, a a terrorist organization dedicated to the eradication of the state of Israel and Jews in the Middle East, is a progressive movement. And you don't see anybody on the left going, Judith, you're a nutcase. You're crazy. You're a murderer. What are you, what are you doing? No, they, they just all go along. You know, they just all go along. Right, right. But this is similar to the free speech debate, that the argument that John Milton famously made in uh, Areopagitica, where he says, you know, you need to have all the different views, even the bad views, because you, how else do you arrive at the best conclusion if you're not working with all the information? And so one of the strongest free speech arguments has always been the one that is often summed up as sunlight is the best disinfectant. So rather than banning the views you don't like, you counter them. So if there's a narrative that is capturing the minds of young Americans and persuading them to think favorably about Hamas, rather than ban TikTok, you come up with a narrative that is more powerful than the one that Hamas is using. You, you come up with a better story in a way that is more attractive to those individuals. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I, 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 sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, Israel has morality on its side. I, mean, there's no, I don't think there's any doubt about but what I would think, what I would do on TikTok, if 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 I were the Israelis, is I would put I would put the unedited massacre videos on there. When you know, when someone there's some influencer on on TikTok and they're going, I'm reading the Quran and you know, hubba hubba, I think this is great. I, you know, I don't believe that October seventh really happened. The IDF ought to you know be upfront, not be stealthy about it. Send them a video and say. This is what Hamas did on October 7th. This is the unedited truth of what they broadcast. Now, is this what you support, really? And then if they say, yeah, then you use that against them, you know, again, in an open way where you would influence on, on TikTok other people and say, look, you know, let's not let's not kid around here and, and obfuscate what happened and give the edited version so you don't really see what the real bloody truth was. We're going to show you what the bloody truth was. And this is what you're back. And, and, and it, it was like a come to Jesus moment with these people because they don't see it. Mm. It's not real to them. That's a good point. I interviewed Sergio Popovich of the Odpor movement. He made the same point. It uh, uh, talked about how there were just so many things under uh, Slobodan Milosevic that were outlawed and that would get you immediately thrown into prison. And they had to come up with other ways of fighting back. And those ways could not be physical. 
And it ended up being essentially, I, I suppose, a kind of um, narrative warfare. It ended up being, we need to have the better story. We need to fight back and, and appeal to people with the narrative that we have, because we can't do it by flooding the streets and we can't do it by getting into conflict, into any kind of physical conflict where we would lose. And he was enormously successful. And uh, Milosevic was uh, met his end as a result. And, and Popovich has since gone on to train other groups in other parts of the world, including Ukraine, which I think has used, perhaps we would call it meme warfare to great effect in capturing Western attention and support in ways that were incredibly powerful. And I, to your point, I think part of what they did that was so, at least for me, that was so powerful was being exposed to images and to videos that are undeniably horrible and you don't even have to add any context or you don't have to explain. You just show people that this is what's happening. It was sort of a, there was sort of an inflection point among some of my friends who were either on the fence or, you know, maybe they, they were debating some of the small, and then they saw some of these videos and it was almost kind of like that moment in American history where uh, our exposure through the media in Vietnam for the first time, seeing war, seeing it, what it really was, and having all of those sort of glorious ideas about the, the you know, those Hollywood images in our mind of the glory of war and it's all just swept away. And you see, the, you see what up until that point in history, only soldiers knew. Mm -hmm. And then people back home in their living rooms saw it. And People have argued that that was the undoing of our presence in Vietnam because the public was like, what is this? We have to get out, get out of this. And, and that um, there was a there was a shift like that with Ukraine where these videos were coming out, images were coming out. People saw this and then they just, you know, there's just nothing. There's there's there are no counter images coming out of Russia, obviously. There, this isn't taking place in Russia. And so for some of my friends who were on the fence, they were no longer on the fence once they saw that. But but then you have the issue of the manipulation of videos that we now have to contend with and deep fakes and the ability to have a video of Obama saying things on film that he never said. And his, you know, his lips are perfectly in sync with the word. It's now I've even seen there's a new technology where you can record yourself and then you can have yourself speaking a language that you don't speak and your lips will be synced to the words. So the, the levels, the sophistication of, uh, of, of digital warfare and fourth generation warfare are reaching levels now where you have to almost be an expert to navigate through this stuff and, and even as a journalist with some training in fact-checking, I find it, I mean, if you show me a video of someone saying something, I, I, I don't know how to determine whether or not that's authentic. And my inability to authenticate, usually what I end up having to do is rely on the, uh, the analysis of other people who specialize in this type of thing. So the terrain is getting very messy very quickly. And for people who are, let's say you're a 17-year-old high schooler, who gets a lot of your news from TikTok, I think you don't even stand a chance. You're just, you're at the whim of whatever information is being fed to you. Well, you know, I agree with you. And, you know, I look at, there's some videos, I probably have shared stuff that wasn't true. Although, you know, I, I try to be as careful as I can. Mm -hmm. But I look at like who reposted it on, on Twitter. You know, if Malcolm Nance reposted it or Annie Applebaum reposted it, or, you know, somebody who's credible mm -hmm. 
Um, and I said, well, they, they, they have a little bit more expertise than I do. So yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to share that. And then there's guys I share that I, I read through what they've said and read, you know, go to other posts and they go, well, the guy seems to know what he's talking about. Um, and I'll share that, but yeah, it's, it's a very difficult time, but you know what, you know what the IDF could do is like, you know, I, you know, I watch the IDF, um, briefings that they, that they do on, on Twitter and they're, they're very informative and they're very uh, factual. Um, but I, you know, I'm 71 and I come out of military intelligence. So I'm listening to a military briefer. It's going to be, it's going to resonate with me. If I'm a 17 year old kid, you know, I, maybe a 17 year old, uh, Jewish girl from Israel talking to you on TikTok would be far better mm -hmm. than an IDF spokesman. But I haven't seen that, or I'm not aware that the IDF has recruited, you know, a young generation of Israelis to go on, you know, go on TikTok, go on Facebook, go on wherever, wherever it is that you got to go and engage in conversations with people. You know, hi, I'm from Israel and this is what's going on and blah, 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 and, you know, and wage it that way. Mm -hmm. Some, some Twitter spaces or something like that. You know, I don't know if the IDF is involved, but what I have seen and more than one of these, I, I have no idea how many there are out there, but what I've seen is Israelis of color putting out videos because part of the narrative is, well, you have these white cellar colonists and then the Palestinians are people of color. And that sets up a particular type of narrative that resonates with Americans who tend to frame a lot of issues in terms of black and white um, or people of color and, and white people. And I've seen a lot of videos, a lot, well, I would say less than a dozen, but maybe more than five and they are Israeli. They've, they've all been Israeli women of color explaining their experience and their life and the fact that, hi, I'm Israeli. I'm not white. And one of them was in the IDF and she's got her uniform on and she's explaining, you know, her pride in her country and her love of her uh, grandparents and how her family came to Israel. And then she goes into a conversation about what happened on October 7th. It's quite interesting to hear it from her perspective. And um, and she's black. She's uh, one of some of the videos have been um, people who appear to be Middle Eastern. Uh, this this young woman is, is black. And that's something that as someone who lived in Israel was not surprising to me. Israel is one of the most uh, ethnically diverse countries in the world. But I think it would be very surprising for a lot of people to see a black Israeli who, who don't know anything about Israel. And that's, you're right. That is exactly the kind of thing that would help. I think I saw the same video. I think, I think she was a major in the IDF, black woman. And that was really good. And then there was a Bedouin woman. I didn't uh, see that. I saw a Bedouin woman uh, talking about her experiences. And, and that's, yeah. And, you know, I think, I can't remember the year it was, but I thought it might've been in the 90s. I mean, I'm hazy about what decade it was, but mm -hmm. something like 25,000 Ethiopian Jews showed, you know, Immigrated into into Israel at one point. It was like a mass migration for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so Israel is very diverse, and it and it does play in, and they're very smart. It does play into that whole narrative that the left has that Israel is this white colonial settler oppressors, and the Palestinians are people of color. And then no, you look at Israel and you go, well, no, half of them actually you can't distinguish from Palestinians because they emigrated actually were ethnically cleansed from Iraq, Egypt, Syria in 1948 and, and afterwards. And you have, you know, a very diverse society in Israel, and they ought to be broadcasting more of that mm. and, and really, you know, explaining the, explaining the story, having young people talking 
on, on TikTok, Twitter, whatever, you know, whatever the social media they have to do and getting those videos out. I mean, they really have to engage in this narrative warfare, meme warfare, even. I haven't seen memes yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you like you always see memes for for um, for Donald Trump. You know, he looks like Superman. He looks like Rambo. He looks like a overmuscled, steroid-driven Jesus. You know, you don't see that kind of meme warfare um, that, that the, the, from from the from the from the from the Israelis uh, against Hamas. They haven't used that yet. Um, so maybe they'll develop that. Maybe they need to use their 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 young people to talk um, on TikTok with these influencers. You know, send the videos to these influencers. You know, hey, engagement and dialogue. Say, look, so you have your point of view. We respect your point of view, but let's have a dialogue. Let's have a live dialogue and 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 and, and see what happens. Yeah, or and and they should also, I think, include some of the voices of what I think would be quite powerful Palestinians who are living in Israel. I think oh, yeah. the public should hear from Palestinians who have lived either in Gaza or the West Bank and who now live in Israel so that they can explain what it's like. And maybe in particular, Palestinian pacifists who we don't hear from, unfortunately. And I think even Palestinians, Gazans, don't often hear from a lot of, this is because a lot of the pacifists in their community have either been isolated or arrested or they don't have a very loud voice in that particular population but it would be i've heard from them i've spoken to them i find it endlessly fascinating to talk to palestinians who their perspective on on the situation right now is priceless and i sometimes relate those experiences those conversations to other people who are completely unaware of this experience of this 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 perspective of palestinians you know people tend to think oh all palestinians are over here in this group and i support the palestinians so i'm on this side and that's uh you know as as people so often like to say about every other group palestinians are not a monolith and there's a lot of palestinians if you're as one Palestinian told me, if you're a Palestinian living in the Middle East, the best place you can probably be is in Israel. That's where you're going to live the most freely and enjoy all of the benefits of liberal democracy. And anywhere else you live, you're going to be probably be living in some form of oppression. Palestinians who live in, I believe, in Jordan for generations still do not have the access to uh, citizenship. It's not difficult to obtain citizenship if you move to Israel. And uh, Palestinians in, in Gaza, they're living under Hamas. So if you're a woman, if you're gay, if you're, or just if you have opinions that don't line up, I mean, any of these things, if you're an atheist, you know, your life is going to be horrific if you have a life. So, oh, yeah. Um, Let's uh, turn the page to the United States and talk about uh, this. You mentioned earlier the Christian right. I'd like to hear more about that and the Christian rights, fourth generation warfare in America and the apostolic reform church. Who are they? Well, the new apostolic reformation was formulated by uh, C. Peter Wagner. Mm -hmm. And then he created a number of movement institutions around him regarding uh, prophets and apostles. And that's the core of the movement. It's, it's the fastest growing segment, you know, in Christianity, if not religion in the world, right? It's spread through all of South America, Central America. It's in Africa. I'm not, I'm not aware of what's going on in Asia, but I know that it, it's, it's certainly been battling the Catholic Church in South America and Central America for dominant, for dominance. And it's, they have their, um, their roots into, into Africa. So it's a it's a global movement, and it has a unique doctrine, which 
basically is a, a amped up uh, version of Christian Reconstructionism, and they call it the Seven Mountains Mandate. And it's a totalitarian, authoritarian um, ideology. And what it says is that Christians of a certain sort, obviously very, you know, not in a religious evangelical sense, but, you know, a very conservative, patriarchal, America first, MAGA types uh, are entitled to rule the seven mountains or institutions of society, like government, family, church, media, business, etc. And everyone else is a second class citizen. And Wagner came up with the idea of spiritual warfare, spiritual mapping, where people would go out in cities and map out where the demons were, uh, focus their attention on. So it's it's an authoritarian movement. It's it's it's, it's Christian nationalism. It's everybody who's not of a particular type of Christian is going to be in a second class or third class um, status in this country. And it's married itself up to Trump. There's, you know, there's a transaction between the two. Obviously he's not Christian, but they see him as a powerful Cyrus figure that God uses as immoral king to do moral things. Right. And that's what they see Trump and Bannon from a different perspective, sees Trump as a blunt instrument to deconstruct the administrative state, which is another way of saying to destroy the bureaucracy, destroy the rule of law. So they all get along. You know, they come at it from different, maybe um, ideological mm-hmm. rhetoric, if you will, but they're all going in the same direction. We're going to live in a fascist, Christian, authoritarian, totalitarian state. Mm-hmm. And uh for listeners, this is something that you lay out in your book, The Christian Rights, Fourth Generation War in America. Yes. And and, and what I talked about, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but what I talked about was they had a drive for power and domination. Now, mm. they call it dominionism, right? But I called it domination because that's what that's what it's about. Yeah. That, and talked about in the first chapter I wrote was the epistemological break with reality. I wrote that in 2013 in which that whole movement is has broken with reality. They have a completely alternative universe of facts. They have a completely different alternative theory of America that church, the separation of church and state is a hoax. And they have David Barton and other people writing these pseudo historians, writing pseudo histories to prove this point that is absolutely absurd. In, in, in that chapter, the first chapter, the Christian rights epistemological break with reality, you talk about um, John Boyd. Who is John Boyd? Okay, John Boyd is probably, was probably, America's premier military strategist. He, he was an Air Force colonel, fighter pilot. He studied war intensely. He gave briefings to the Marine Corps, to anybody in the Pentagon who would listen to him for five, six, seven, eighteen 18 hours. You know, his briefings went on for like two days sometimes. He was a genius at, at, at this. And he developed... The idea of warfare beyond what it normally was. And you, know, you think of warfare as being kinetic, you know, of, of tactical and operational and even strategic, you know, fighting. But Boyd said, look, there's another, there's other dimensions to it. There's, there's the mental dimension to it. And there's the moral dimension to it. There's moral conflict. And that by using maneuver, now you could use maneuver in any different way, but if you, he was talking about you can use maneuver in a military sense, but you could use maneuver as well as like what the Christian right does, where you're moving against 
um, bureaucracies that are you know basically fixed. But you can attack targets. You know, one year you attack this target, the next year you attack a different target. So you go after labor unions in Wisconsin one year, but you come back the next year or two years later and you're attacking gay marriage. And then you skip that and two years later you come back and you're attacking um, uh, abortion rights, right? So you can pick and choose targets. So the maneuver you can maneuver against an opponent. And what Boyd was talking about is that if you maneuver well enough, if you maneuver faster than your opponent, not necessarily at the speed of light, but if you're just moving faster than they can, they can, they can react to, you begin pulling them apart mentally and morally so that they collapse. And if you think those ideas, then when, you know, Lynn borrowed from Boyd to put it into fourth generation warfare, if you can maneuver if you can manipulate images and force people to weaken their attachment, their loyalty to the federal government, that federal government can collapse and people no longer believe in it. You know, you talk about, you know, watching the war in Vietnam on your on your television sets. I was that age, okay, when I saw um, Walter Cronkite one night give his closing talk. And he never gave a closing talk. He usually just, you know, good night, you know, blah, blah, blah. But one night he just, he just, took a few minutes and he just said, you know what? I've been to Vietnam. I've talked to everybody. I've talked to Westmoreland and this war can't be won. And that was the end of boom, mic drop. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that was, you know, people had seen it and then, you know, you go back into the history and, and they talk about the credibility gap of the Pentagon, the Pentagon, uh, the, the credibility gap of the, of, the, of the Johnson administration. And that's what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, the government didn't fall. But Johnson decided he wasn't going to seek re-election. Um, Nixon rode the peace movement, even though he was a conservative. He rode the peace movement into the White House. So it's a complicated topic. But Boyd was talking about a movement, a, you know, a movement. And he has a cha- he has not chapter because he never wrote a book. He has a, a briefings of about I don't know how many slides, two hundred slides. So in one of the slides he's talking about, he was a very he was an admirer of the of the of the tacticians of the Leninists and the Maoists, mm. of how do you, you know where they would where they would go into a village, and they would talk about the the capitalist class there owning the land and cheating the peasants and whatever. And Boyd said, "Well, how do you fight this?" You know, he said, "Well, you have to be not corrupt. You know, you have to be not corrupt." And he says, "If you can't be not corrupt, if you can't solve the problems of the peasants, you might as well flee the country." Right. So it was maneuver warfare. But as I'm pointing to my head, the war, the battle is in your mind. The battle is to win your feelings, to win your loyalty, to win the ideas. And then whatever central government there is, once you transfer the loyalty where you think I'm a Christian first and conservative second and an American third. The United States is losing that battle. You also describe a, a kind of a confluence between the Christian right and the powers that be in Russia because of certain issues that overlap in their interests. One of them being anti-LGBT sentiment. I saw that there's a there's a new initiative that's being considered in Russia that went out this week. It's I don't think it's confirmed yet, but that when foreigners go to Russia, they'll be asked to sign a loyalty pledge, uh, which means that they're agreeing that they're not going to criticize Russia's actions in Ukraine, they're also not going to say anything positive about LGBT individuals, suggesting to me that those those are the two biggest issues. I, obviously, the first one, I understand that that's a, a 
biggest issue for Russia currently. But I didn't expect to see the LGBT issue so up to be one of the two things that it would care about. Right. Maybe it could be like, I don't know, um, don't don't criticize the war in Ukraine. Don't criticize Putin. But it wasn't. I thought that was fascinating. And obviously, this is something that this focus is something that appeals to the Christian right that they also see as central. When I lived in China many moons ago, I ran across a group of people who I didn't know. They were very cagey about who they were, what um, their particular uh, denomination was, but they were missionaries and they told me that they were doing spiritual warfare. So when you mentioned that earlier, I thought, were they... Were they members? They they told me about they were in China and they and so they phrased it as they said, "Well, we we do kung fu," and I said, "Oh, that's wonderful. I I'm here and part of what I do, I'm studying kung fu styles. I you know I, I'm interested in martial arts." And they said, "No, no, it's not it's not physical. We we do spiritual kung fu, uh, fighting demons." And I thought, "Oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by demons? No, literal demons. We're talking about there's." Some people that you see, they're not really people. They look like people. They're actually demons. And so I'm asking them, hmm, what does this spiritual warfare look like? What kind of moves do you do? What is, is this prayer? Essentially what it came down to is that, yes, they, they have certain prayers, certain, I don't know, incantations or things that they say to combat demons who they determine to be demons based on things such as could be you know how the person behaves or dresses or, or they might express a support in a particular belief or, or what have you it sounds to me like i might have run into a couple of these uh, uh apostolic reformation individuals and perhaps that's what they were yeah they were they're probably non-denominational christians that were part of the movement of the new apostolic reformation yeah yeah so that's part of what they do is is spiritual warfare as they, as it's they not all pray, but it's not all pray. You see, when they go on spiritual mapping, what is spiritual mapping? You're mapping, so you're putting a location on a map. This is a demonic stronghold. Now, mm -hmm. you could call it demonic stronghold, stronghold, but it might be Democratic Party headquarters in a city. Mm -hmm. Okay, so mm -hmm. they're mapping out where you know what their target set is. You have, you have to you have to go i think one step further but i want to bring back to when you said you know the, the, what the russians were doing with the lgbt laws now william lynn was employed by paul weirich okay he was the head of the free congress foundation and paul weirich is one of like four or five guys who created the christian right back in the 1970s by 1980 it's it's you can see the christian right Okay, you have the moral majority as the public face, and then you have all the organizations in Washington, D.C. But <clears throat> what is it, 1987, I think, uh -huh. Berlin Wall Force, right? Okay. So Christian rights have been in existence seven years. Paul Weirich is one of the poobahs of the Christian right. He makes over 50 trips to Russia, right? Over 50 trips. Now, I don't know how many trips William Lynn made or didn't make. I, I have no idea. But Paul Warwick is Lynn's boss. And the KGB, obviously, because they're talking to, you know, they're talking to um, Russian Orthodox priests. We're all KGB guys. They're either, they're either in the KGB or they're run by the KGB. And the KGB is taking them all in. 
you know, listening to them, how they speak, what their values are, blah, 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 and getting to know them on a very good basis. Now, I don't know what other basis there is, but, you know, when you, if you, if you interview some, if you interact with somebody 50 times over 20 years, you get to know their ins and outs of what their thinking is. And then you consider it with a whole group of people who come, you know, the World Congress Foundation, uh, World Family World Family Conference that goes that that that, that goes to Russia and goes to other other uh, uh, capitals in Europe. So the Russians are playing a very strong influence game with the Christian right, and what they they come out with, of course, is that and and they have their own reasons for it as well. I mean, there's some legitimate reasons we want to get the birth rate in Russia up because you know the the birth rate is declining mm-hmm. uh, because they drink too much and you know, whatever. So. They come out against abortion, and then they come out against gay rights, um, and then he starts making the case that you know the West is is immoral, um, but he's not saying anything that Jerry Falwell didn't say. You know, mm-hmm. Jerry Falwell on nine eleven goes, well, the reason why the reason why Al Qaeda attacked the, the Twin Towers is because you have abortion rights, feminists, and gays. Well, blame the victim. Oh, so I mean we're guilty. For, for al-Qaeda attacking us. Mm-hmm. So the KGB, uh, FSB, um, under Putin and others, they, they, they interlink with the Christian right on moral issues. And those moral issues are used to delegitimize um, the federal government. You know, for example, you know, I have a good friend. I'm not going to say who he is, but I have a good friend. And to him, the most important issue is, is opposing abortion. And it's a legitimate issue. It's a legitimate issue. And it's a legitimate um, viewpoint. But that viewpoint is he'll oppose abortion, but he'll also vote for Trump, even though Trump is going to be a disaster for the country. And this is how the Christian right is. They, they look at the stake of, they don't say, well, who's going to give us the biggest tax cut or who's going to solve the global crisis of, of climate? Who's going to take on the opioid crisis? No, the issue is abortion, civil rights. The issue is uh, or critical race theory. Uh, the issue is um, uh, gays or transgenderism. And that becomes the most important issue facing the country, not foreign policy, not climate change, not um, the economy. or Yeah, not the economy, you know, not how do we compete with China in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, the answer to that question is partly you have to have a green economy. What do you say about the theory that, uh, as I've heard it put, that the Christian right or or Christians, the Christian community, didn't really care that much about abortion once upon a time, and that this is actually something that was that was put together by people like Jerry Falwell and others, not because they had a deep seated um, opposition to abortion, but because they wanted because it was a a unifying issue. But ultimately, what they were really trying to do was put people, they were trying to to uh, get passions riled up in order to develop a base, in order to put uh, politicians into into positions. And the reason that they wanted this was because they had universities and they wanted to maintain their universities, uh, segregationist policies, not allowing blacks into the universities, essentially, this is, this is the, the theory. Uh, have you heard of this before? And what do you think of it? Randall Bomber. Uh, wrote about this in his book, and I think in an, in an article, and I think is I think he's correct. Uh, the issue that really um, was driving the evangelical movement 
back in the 70s was a, was the, the loss of tax um, status for, for racism, for segregation in violation of Brown versus Board of Education. And that happened under Nixon and happened under Carter. And they were incensed about it. But you couldn't, you know, start a movement in America post, you know, post-civil rights about, about re- bringing back segregation. So they, Brent Obama wrote that, that Paul Weirich um, talked to Jerry Falwell, and of course they had a, a Christian roundtable, and they came up with a moral majority, and the, the driving issue was abortion. When abortion was in 1973, the, the Roe v. Wade was 1973. By 1980 is when the moral majority comes into, um, into view, into, into, into existence. For six or seven years, the only people who were really opposed to Roe v. Wade was the Catholic Church, because that was a principal um, stance that the church had against abortion. Hmm. The Protestants were not engaged in that. When they did get engaged with it, they had to, they had to link up with, with, with the Catholics, and they had to you know, accommodate two different religious um, movements that really had been antagonistic. At least the Protestants had been antagonistic to the Catholics for a couple hundred years. So they came into that abortion issue and they eventually took it over from the Catholics. Mm. With Operation Rescue, they became more direct action and more violent. Uh, the Army of God was a terrorist terrorist organization. So they used the abortion issue to bridge the differences between Catholics and Protestants of all different kinds, the evangelicals, the uh, Pentecostals, uh, charismatics. And at the same time, what's going on to bring them together is they have the um, Coalition on Revival, in which they're saying to you know the, to the evangelicals and the charismatics and the Pentecostals, listen, let's put, put aside all of our doctrinal differences, okay? Whatever those differences are, let's put them aside and concentrate on how do we affect um, political change now so we can build a kingdom for Christ, right? Mm-hmm. You get the Catholics involved in it. You get the conservative uh, Jewish, Jews involved in it. And that's how they build this movement. And the, the New Apostolic Reformation is part of it from, the, from that beginning. And so you have this movement that puts aside all kinds of purity tests, ideological differences, theological differences, who's a post-millennial, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic, you know, whatever. They put it all aside so that they can concentrate on the political tasks at hand, stopping abortion, stopping gay rights, stopping civil rights later, stopping, you know, transgender rights later, you know. So that's what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You've you've written that current scholarship attributes the rise of the Patriot Militia to the Christian identity religion, and this is mistaken, you say. What is the Christian identity religion, and what is the actual driving force behind the rise of the Patriot Militia? So the Christian identity religion is, is an offshoot of British Israelism, which basically is the Jews are the demon seed of Satan. And white Aryans are the lost tribe, one of the 12 lost tribes. So it's a deeply racist, anti-black, anti-Semitic movement, religious movement. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, you know, you read, if you go back and read the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center, there's about, you know, a couple of dozen of these preachers 
you know, preaching in these small rural uh, areas. You know, they, they probably have outhouses. Um, they use, you know, bulletin boards, you know, the, the electronic bulletin boards. They don't really have a whole lot of resources. They don't have a lot of reach. So who puts together the militia group? Well, the Christian identity is certainly part of it. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, in one of their first analyses of the, the Patriot Militia, said, you know, 20% of the militia movement is linked to white supremacists like the Christian identity guys. Of course, the Christian identity guys were also linked to the Aryan Nations people and, and other neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan guys. Okay, but that's only about 20% of the movement. So I said, you know, so what's the other 80%? Well, where do you get these guys? What's going on? So... Robert Churchill writes a book. He's a, he's a libertarian historian. He comes to the unsurprising result that the, the, that the Patriot Militia is libertarian. Of course, he's a libertarian historian. He's going to try to do that. So I use his data in one of my chapters because I'm not going to create data. I'm just going to use his data. And so who organized this stuff? And you get Baptist preachers going out, you know, Greg Olson, the guys from the Michigan Militia, guys from the Montana Militia. Now, the Montana Militia, some of them, you know, are... Uh, Christian identity guys, but not all. But when you look at who organizes, who goes out and organizes, it's really the Christian right. Who has a plan for the Patriot Militia? It's certainly not the Christian identity guys. It's the Christian right. In 1989, they're talking about having nationwide county militias, militias and churches. That's part of the Coalition on Revival. 1989, William Lind is writing about the first article on fourth generation warfare, and he lays out the principles of fourth generation warfare for a non-state actor. And I looked at those principles and then mapped them onto the 1990s Patriot Militia Movement. And that's what they were. That's where they got the plan. So who comes, you know, there's an Estes Park meeting, I think, in 1990. Could have been 91, but I think it's 1990. So there's 160 guys show up. 157 of them are, are from the Christian identity, white supremacist movement. Three of them are from the Christian right. So you think, oh, well, the Christian identity has 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 much more influence. But who are the three guys? Well, one's one's uh, Pratt from the gun owners, gun, owners, gun owners of America, right? Another guy was a former member of uh, the Christian Coalition, I think, or Moral Majority, something like that. Mm-hmm. So these guys come from representing major organizations of the Christian right. If they come and they agree, they're going to do a militia movement. Now, the funny thing, as I said in, in my chapter, is, you know, here's all these guys, they come together, you know, all these Christian identity guys come together, they're going to do a movement, and for two years, nothing really happens. And then all of a sudden, the movement explodes. So what's going on? Well, obviously, the people with resources were the Christian right. And the Constitution Party is forming up nationwide. The Wisconsin Christian, uh, the Wisconsin Constitution Party is the one leading the charge to form these militias. And all of a sudden, there's militias everywhere. And you have Baptist preachers going out and forming militias. And then you look at the first manual of the, of, of the Patriot Militia Movement, and it's about abortion. Surprise, surprise. And it's about gun rights. And then it's about stealing the resources of the American people from the American people to give it to corporations, which is exactly what the Christian right was doing at the time through the 1980s. So you look at it and you, I looked at it and go, you know, no matter how you, how you look at this thing, even if you look at who's mobilized, right? You go, I would use the Pew typologies. Libertarians are a minority in these Pew typologies, 
But what's what is the majority is 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 you know conservative Christian folks who make up most of the movement, most of the patriot militia, mm-hmm. and that's the arm wing of the movement. And they, you know, there's this a lot of I think there's a lot of different militias, but that's the that's a a disciplined segment of the militia movement, and I don't think they're really well understood. And and as you said earlier, with other uh, movements, this is a, there's a there's a core of coordinated masterminds you could say and much of the rest of it is organic and i'm sure everything you're saying right now would be a surprise to many of the people who are uh members and integral to its functioning yeah you know if you look at a movement from a holistic standpoint and you have you have patriot militias spread out all over the country and they know that they're being looked at by the fbi and department of homeland security they know they're being watched they're being looked at and so they got to be very, very careful about infiltrators. They got to be very, very careful about uh, the electronic communications they're in. But you know what? There's a whole other command and control and communications network. It's called preachers. It's called pastors, right? You have the you have the you have the revolutionary pastors, or you have the black regiment pastors, or you have you know whatever flavor that's that's going on. These networks in the NAR that have 50 state networks. They don't have ever said that they disavow uh, violence. They've never said they disavowed having militias. They have church militias. You read, you read. I think it was Taibbi who went to a church and in, in one of his books, I can't remember which one it was, but he's, he's talking about what's going on and you can see the seeds of, of that, that separating out to have a militia. Uh, and they haven't hidden the fact that there are militias inside churches. But they don't have to advertise. They don't have to broadcast the Southern Poverty Law Center. Hey, here we are. No, they have a militia. It's under the control of their pastors. They communicate through pastoral networks. That's my hypothesis, that there's a whole other network of stuff going on that, we, that we're not really aware of. This <laughs> marriage between the Christian right and these militias, is the National Rifle Association wrapped up in this? The National Rifle Association, I wrote a chapter or two chapters. The National Rifle Association was, uh, along with the Gun Owners of America and along with another one, uh, the Right to Bear Arms. Um, the Right to Bear Arms took the lead, but the National Rifle Association and Gun Owners of America are all part of that forming the um, uh, wilderness movement, uh, wise use movement. That was a wise use movement. Wise that was use. an anti-environmental movement, which was another way of trying to steal the resources of the American people and give it to billionaires and corporations. The National Rifle Association is the one that heaped up the fear and menace of the gun grabbers, which mobilized you know people to join militias. Uh, they promoted the militia movement. So the, you know the National Rifle Association, the Gun Owners of America, right to uh, keep and bear arms, are all part of this fomenting of uh, conspiracy theories, uh, ramping up menace and terror against us, along with expressing menace and uh, uncertainty for them and fear so that they can get members to join the, uh, the militia movement. It's, it's, the militia movement is largely the armed wing of the Christian right. And the GOP, the Republican Party, is just basically the political wing of the Christian right. They're the, the Christian rights, the 800 pound gorilla. And I don't mean that lightly. You know, when you look at, you know, and Bruce Wilson did some really groundbreaking work pulling together a lot of data. Christian right gets about a billion dollars a year in donations, right? To spread it out. And they use donors trust and other black money, um, dark money, uh, 
organizations. And you look at the donors trust and they, they give, they get money from billionaires or millionaires. And then the millionaires say, I want it to go to this place or that place. But the donors trust says in order to, for an organization to get money from us, they have to believe in certain Christian principles, right? And these Christian principles are very, very conservative and very, very strict. And lo and behold, you know, groups like Americans for Prosperity get money from them. Um, Heritage Foundation, I think Cato Institute, Reason get money from them. So they have to sign up for this stuff. Now, I may be wrong on the, on the particulars, like maybe it's not Reason, but, you know, but if you look at the donors list and go to Bruce Wilson's research, you'll be amazed at how many, you know, quote unquote, secular organizations are getting religious money. And when you're getting funded $800 million to a billion dollars a year, and you go to a meeting in Estes Park to form a militia movement, and you're representing a movement with $800 million a year, and they don't have, all they have is outhouses, you know who's running the show. You have a chapter in your book titled The War on Science. I'd be fascinated to know how the war on science fits into this. The war on science has, I think, two, two main sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, you know, everybody, you know, if you, if you read the literature on, like, you know, they always blame English professors and, you know, coming out of academia. But I, 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 I just put that aside and say, you know, the first war on science came from corporations. It came from, it came from the tobacco industry and it came from the oil industry. And they were attacking the science, environmental science and science about cigarette smoking. And they were the ones who were confusing people with uh, what they called junk science. That is, real science was junk science. So they were delegitimizing actual science instead of putting forth what they needed to, to, to maintain their profits, whether it's, for, whether it's for, for cigarettes or for fossil fuels. Well, the second part of it was the Christian right signs up to this. Now, the Christian right is signing up to the war on science because its first beef was on evolution. So they opposed evolution and they opposed the teaching of evolution in schools. And so they had to create their own science and they marry up with the wise use movement, which is part of the Christian right. You know, I mean, the wise use movement was formed by the Christian right. And so you get this you know, synergy of corporations, you know, carbon, you know, carbon based corporations, cigarette corporations, wise use movement, patriot militia. Christian right, all coming together oppose the science. And evolution was one. I think they used gay rights, the science of gay rights uh, against it. That was the second one. So, the, the, you know, it's, there's two main sources to that. So the Christian right then takes on this war on science in a sense that strangely, I think we've, we've now reached a point in America where, I, you know, when I was younger, I used to, this used to be one of the issues that I used to lovingly debate with my much more conservative friends. And the science issue would always come up. And it was one to which they had no solid response because it's undeniably true. And then also there were no examples of the left doing any such thing. I think we've now reached the point where that's no longer the case. And and we have opposition to science across the political spectrum Mm -hmm. that I see, unfortunately, you know, as it's been famously put, we we are in a post-truth era unfortunately. And um, as you and I have been discussing, you know, the, the information warfare. Another chapter in your book is titled The Roots of Biblical Capitalism. Is this a reference to prosperity theology? Uh, in part, that's part of it. But, you know, one of the things they did was Gary North was a Christian Reconstructionist strategist, a premier Christian Reconstructionist strategist. His father-in-law 
was Rusus Rasajuni, who was the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. Now, Christian Reconstructionism simply is, we're going to reconstruct America along biblical lines. And if you don't believe in our version of the Bible, you're going to be a second or third class citizen. Okay. Now that turns into seven mountains mandate. So Gary North, he wants to delegitimize along with the libertarians like Ron Paul and the other idiots, uh, the Federal Reserve System. So they go after delegitimizing the Federal Reserve System by calling it, you know, fiat money. And they, for the last 40 years or so, 50 years, have been touting that hyperinflation is just around the corner. Mm -hmm. And that's their way of delegitimizing the federal government using that issue of biblical money or biblical worldview on, on capitalism, which is a very libertarian uh, notion, right? And that's the, the, so the roots of, of biblical capitalism is, is this marriage of libertarian economics for the benefit of billionaires and corporations with a, a modicum of, of, of biblical justification for it. I mean, you know, when, when you read Gary North, he writes hundreds of pages, but he only uses like one 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 verse out of the Bible for the whole thing is, you know, honest weights and measures. You know, I mean, he constructs the whole thing out of one, one, one little simple thing. And it's like the, he ignores, even though he's an economist, he ignores the fact that capitalism is really structured by governments. Mm -hmm. The law of contracts is structured by the government. How markets work is structured by the government. The transportation system for capitalism is basically constructed by the government. So it has, it has very little to do with libertarianism. Libertarianism doesn't build anything. You know, if the United States had been waiting for libertarians to build anything, we would have never built the, the, the interstate highway system. That was built by the state. That was built by the federal government. So much of what we have that is built by the government that is what I suppose by one definition you could call socialist is so normalized and taken for granted that I think people don't even realize, that even libertarians that I know don't even realize, like if we went completely in this direction, all of the things that we wouldn't have anymore or that would be privatized and wouldn't exist in their in the form in which they do. And I, would, I wouldn't call it socialism. I would call it more like communitarian. Okay. You know, community resources, you know, that's shared by the community. Like a lot of the money for the interstate highway system came from the federal government, but it was a part, you know, that we would call now the, the public-private partnership mm -hmm. thing. But that goes back way to the, you know, I, I remember reading in, you know, like almost in grade school, so it's like that long ago. Um you know, the construction of the Erie Canal is like one of the first infrastructure projects. You know, the government paid for it, but somebody else was building it. It wasn't the government building it. You know, so we've had this thing through history where the government and corporations, not only, I'm not, not necessarily for the benefit of, of everybody, but, you know, building the transcontinental railroad, uh, building the interstate highway system, building the internet. The internet doesn't come from, from any of those Silicon Valley guys that basically didn't exist, right? None of them thought up the internet. That was from the Department of Defense having to have a communication system uh, in the event of a nuclear war, right? Uh, going to the moon wasn't the idea of any genius uh, sitting in you know, Silicon Valley someplace or sitting at Harvard. No, that was President Kennedy saying, in 10 years, we're going to the moon. Now, you guys make it work at NASA, mm -hmm. okay? It, it, it boggles in my mind when people go, well, the for free market work best. Works best at what? I mean, I worked in the government and we outsourced things, right? So we outsourced some intelligence. I, I, had, to, I had to supervise a contract, you know, a very small little tiny contract, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head like, you know, the government can tell me to, to you know, I, I, I'm in Bosnia. The government can tell me, hey, we'll pay you, uh, for, you know, if you work overtime, we'll pay you for 15, 16, 17 hours, right? And whatever the government asked me to do, I do. 
I, I don't look at my contract and say, well, that's not in the terms of work. You know, it's the government says, no, we want you to do this. And I go, yes, sir. Got it. Boom. I'm off doing it. I have contractors working for me. I got to look at, is it in the term of work? Well, it, it, that's, that's an interpretive thing. Then I look, you look at the contract and you go, well, they get paid. They get paid my salary. And then the corporation gets paid like 20, 25%. How are they saving the government money? This whole, this whole thing has been, you know, an absolute lie spread to the American people that somehow outsourcing services from the government saves the taxpayers money. It's impossible. You're paying people good wages, and then you're putting a surcharge on top of it. <laughs> so your third book is on the Tea Party movement, correct? Well, I, I that, that was the first stuff I actually wrote. Okay, um, was on the Tea Party movement, and it was on a website, uh, Political Chile. Uh, the website because it attacked Ron Paul. Uh, the website got destroyed, uh, presumably by people who wanted to defend Ron Paul, but I don't know that. Um, but I then found the articles on my computer and said, you know, maybe I ought to just publish these things just to yeah. put them out there. That, you know, and that was my first take on it, looking at it. And that was like, what, 2009. Mm -hmm. And I still hadn't gotten, in, gotten into fourth generation warfare. It doesn't come out until like 2013 or so. Mm -hmm. But 2009, I start looking at it and it's like, man, this marriage of the Christian right and this Tea Party movement. Yeah. really close and the white power movement is joining joining in on them and that was the first time i had noticed um th that these three movements can come together and then out of the tea party movement i think before that i started going back and looking and the immigration movement was the same it was the same thing you have the christian right you have militias and then you have the white power movement mm -hmm. joining in at the very subterranean level but the ADL, the, the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty League, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, were excellent at getting ground level data showing how this collaboration was going. And you have over a period of like 20 or 30 years now at the grassroots level where middle class guys come out, you know, middle class men and women come out and they may be excited about the, the, the Tea Party movement or they may be excited about um, anti-immigration or whatever other thing is going on. And at the local level, you get this mix of Christian right, militias, white power, um, guys, uh, all mixing in together and with the Republican Party. And that's how you get these middle class guys radicalized, because they're rubbing shoulders with Nazis. And it's, it's, it's not bothering. Them. And then all of this feeds into uh, the Tea Party movement and the Christian right and the, and the militias that all feeds into this generalized mass support for Trump. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Trump is tr Trump is the recipient. Now, he has his own genius about how does he appeal to people. Right. right? And 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 and. He has the genius of how he talks, and I think Jennifer Mercia has a book on his on his rhetoric, um, and and Nelson has a book on how the, the Christian right came in to, to supporting him. But he has a genius for pulling all these strands together because he had people looking at this movement, you know, when he was first running, and he has guys like Roger Stone who are plugged into this movement deeply. And he's able to pull all these different strands together and give them what they want. You know, he's a very transactional guy. And yeah. he just basically goes, goes to the Christian right, so what do you want? You want abortion? You got it. You want judges that will overturn abortion? You got it. Whatever you want, you got it. Libertarians, what do you want? You want no tax? Okay, you got no taxes. We'll reduce the, uh, the, 
corporate red tape, you know, whatever the thing it is. He's a very transactional guy, but he's also an authoritarian fascist. Would it be fair to say, this is a popular theory, I'm certainly not the first one to say it, that the that the evangelicals or the Christian right, there's so many things from the perspective of a Christian, there would be so many things about Trump not to like, and yet they embrace him simply because he promised them abortion? Is that a fair summary? Well, remember, what they're about is power and domination. That's why the second chapter I wrote about was, first first was the epistemological break of reality. The second chapter was their drive for power and domination, okay? They want to run the place. Oh, so not abortion in your view abortion is just is just a tactic to use mm-hmm. it's just a weapon to use the goal the end state is they run the country and what they found is that they had you know these open primaries there's all kinds of people running and they couldn't they couldn't decide on you know who was the most christian guy who was the most righteous person and then they woke up to the fact that trump was not righteous he wasn't christian but he was the strongest dude out there and mm-hmm. he was going to kick the butt of all the Republicans running against him, and he made them a deal. He made them an offer they couldn't refuse, basically. You support me, mobilize the evangelicals. You got 80% of the vote for evangelicals, and I will hand you overturning Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it wasn't the end goal for them, but it was something that they do care about very much, and they were willing to. Exactly. But the, remember, the goal was domination, and they got to be there, you know, they had that President's Club or whatever they called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, advising him they go to the white house and they all lay hands on the president and they're all praying for him and he's giving them a political speech and they're you know binding their loyalty and they all you know and people go well how could they because trump is three times married you know screwing a porn star blah 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 how could he do it they come up with their own little theory oh there's king cyrus a very immoral king God works through him. So God is working through Trump. He's an, he's anointed Trump. He's our instrument. He's going to do the domination part for us. He's going to do our bidding. And they make a deal with him. So I mean, in Christianity, I mean, you read the Bible, you can get anything you want out of it. You want to have a justification for mass murder? You can open it up. Phillips, I, I can't remember the guy's, uh, Phillips, his last name was Phillips, writes a book on, on the Bible. There's massacres and genocides in, in the Old Testament. You want a justification for genocide? You can find it. Yeah. You want a genocide for stoning people to death? You can find it. You want to yeah. marry, marrying off your sister? You can find it. When you say domination, are you talking about um, they want a, two questions, they want a theocratic state? And second, who are they specifically? Who in the Christian right, who are the leaders or the ones that are really behind this movement that uh, if they do want a theocratic state or if not, then what exactly is the end goal? Well, as to what they want, I don't think they want religious rulers actually ruling the state. Mm -hmm. What they've always written about, and and you can talk to Frederick Clarkson and Andre Gagne and and other people, Rachel Tabachnik, Bruce Wilson, you talk to other people, Julie Ingersoll. I think what they want is that the government that's in place is doing things that they conceive of as biblical, Okay. right? So you don't have to have a preacher in there, but Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, will do what they need to do, mm-hmm. okay? Trump, in, as the president, will sign whatever piece of legislation comes to him because his religious advisors tell him, hey, this is a good thing, right? So it may not necessarily be a theocracy like Iran, but everything that the government does will be filtered through a religious prism. 
So they don't need it to be a theocracy as long as they get everything that they want that they would get if it were a theocracy. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. You know, and they could, you know, I remember once reading, <clears throat> they said one of the big differences between the Christian Reconstructionists and the New Apostolic Reformation was the Christian Reconstructionists want 50, 50, 50 different theocracies, right? 50 states, 50 different theocracies, and the NAR wants one, right? But you can see this playing out, and this is, this is a window into their thinking, is do you have, do you really give the states the right to ban abortion or not ban abortion, like institute abortion in, in part of the Constitution, or do you have a federal ban on abortion everywhere, right? And so this is playing out at the, at the theocratic level because it's a very important philosophical point for them. Do you let the states decide or do you do what the NARA wants and have a federal ban? And of course, the movement, that anti-abortion movement is divided on that. But this is the conflict that's within the movement. And I've studied, you know, movements. And when they come to power, you know, when they come to power, there's a, a reckoning within them, right? I mean, even when Hitler came to power, there was a reckoning with the elements of the Nazi party that he had to get rid of. Some guys, you know, had different ideas in the, in the SA than in the SS. So th they would have a conflict. How worried should we be? about the Christian right, and uh, what what would the appropriate response look like? Appropriate response to the Christian right? Well, how worried should we be? How serious of a threat are we facing currently in America? And yes, what would uh, what do you well, think? Well, they are a really dangerous threat because it is not simply a movement that's detached from violence or from politics. The Christian right, basically, the Republican Party, you can say MAGA, but the Republican Party is basically the political wing of the Christian right. And the militia movement, with the, even with the Proud Boys, the neo-Nazis, uh, the Ku Klux Klan out there, that is the military wing of the Christian right. Is there a you, way to, to pull those apart? Is there a way to save the Republican Party, separate it out? And no, you don't think so? I don't, I don't see it. They, you know, I, because... For one thing, the Christian right has an ideology, if not a theology, okay? And that's not going anywhere. Right. That's not going anywhere. It may, it may evolve, but that core of wanting domination or dominionism is not going to go anywhere. And then you look at the funding for the Christian right. You know, every year they're getting like $800 million to put this, put this out into, into organizations at the local level, national level, state level, running different campaigns and stuff. Uh, and is that going away? You don't see, you know, and then you have the Republican Party itself, which is MAGA, which is bought into the big lie about 2016, uh, 2020 election, rather. And do you see corporations saying, oh, we can't fund these people? No, corporations don't care one iota that Republican Party is running on the big lie, that Trump is running on the big lie. They're looking at it from, we're going to get less regulations, we're going to get less taxes. And we're going to have more access to public lands, if not being able to steal them at, at a bargain price. And that's that's how they look at it. Okay. You know, it's like it's like left wingers get get suckered by these corporations. They, you know, the right wing, you know, puts does a bathroom bill in North Carolina, right? So three three guys in a dress can't go to the bathroom in the women's room, and corporations are ready to go to the mattress, right? Absolutely ready to go to the mattress, pull out. The NCA tournament, pull out, you know, conferences, whatever. They're, they go to war over three guys in, in a dress can't go to the bathroom. 
in the women's room. In the meantime, North Carolina can purge the voting records of 200,000 black citizens to keep them from voting, can rewrite the Constitution so that a Democratic governor has virtually no power. And what are the, what are the corporations do? Absolutely nothing. Zero. They don't even raise, it's not even raised at their, at their cocktail martini hour. And why is that? Why do they care so much about one and not the other? Because they can, because they can sucker the left. The left has, the left in America has basically bought into identity politics that's more important about, you know, race or, or your gender, uh, you know, than class politics. Mm-hmm. Who gets what? How is power really distributed in the workplace? How is power really distributed in America according to class? Now, you know, I, you know, I, I can, you know, I'm, a, I, you know, Marty Lipset was my was my on my dissertation committee. Marty was a, you know, called himself an apolitical Marxist, which I would consider myself an apolitical Marxist. What does that mean? I look at, I look at the, you know, class conflict, mm. you know, of you know of of the elections, and you know, only Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, a few other people, actually talk about we have to change, you know, the structure of capitalism here to get a more equitable society. The left wing. Would, would basically be, uh, the progressives would be, well, if you had three blacks and three Arabs and um, five women and two, two transgender on a corporate board and they screwed the workers, that would be okay because it's diverse. Mm. This is a point I think that Freddie DeVore, who I interviewed, he writes about in his book, How the Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. And I think for him, uh, it really comes down to class. And I myself wrote a post uh, in which I in which I argue that I think many people are unknowingly Marxists because the the forms of analysis and the the the, the philosophy has been so influential that we don't even realize when we're using Marxist analysis in the first place. I've never heard the expression a political Marxist, but I like that. I think I. Yeah, I think that's a good expression. I mean, I do think it comes down to class, and I wish we would get back to class and put a lot of the identitarian stuff. I think I think Biden under I think Biden understands it that build back America and you know building from the from the from the middle class up from the working class up. I think he gets it. He understands mm-hmm. it. Um, but, so you know, my problem, you know, my problem, like with the Democratic Socialists, like with AOC. I love AOC up until like the last few sentences that she did with, you know, on, on, on October 7th, you know, she's trying to thread a line, thread a, thread the needle uh, in ways that Tlaib and, and Ilhan are not. But the problem I have with AOC and, 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 and Bernie Sanders is they say they're democratic socialists. They say they're socialists. And in point of fact, they're lying through their teeth. Either that or they're dumb as a rock because mm-hmm. socialism has to do with who owns the means of production. Right. There's a capitalist class and there's a proletariat. Oh, yeah, it's, it's simplistic. But none of them are talking about changing the ownership of the means of production. I don't see AOC going to her Queens, you know, campaigning in her Queens congressional district and saying, you know what? Um, the city of New York ought to own all the bodegas. It doesn't happen because she's not a socialist. But they have this because this is this is the buzzword. This is the the the, the, the cash. This is the the, the you know the, the the sizzle on the steak sort of thing. Is they call themselves socialists, but they don't know the first thing about socialism, and they're not socialists. And they end up ruining the Democratic Party because who gets branded as socialist because the social the Democratic Party is social democratic. Denmark is not a socialist state. You know, Bernie goes, well, which, which, which socialist country do you like? Oh, Denmark. Well, Denmark's not socialist. Never been socialist. It's a social democratic state. And that's what they told him. We're social democrats. 
And so the Democratic Party has its own problems. First, with the, you know, a lot of problems. That's a whole different, you know, discussion. But one of them is they're not socialists. So why don't you quit calling yourself socialist? Call yourself social democratic, and let the let the Democratic Party get on with what it's got to do mm. on, class, on class analysis and drop a lot of this identity politics. Okay. So what what is the response? Uh, to the Christian right, what is the response to the identity politics? Okay. Is it having a better story, as we discussed before? Is it having yeah. a narrative? What is the, what, okay? Yeah, understand. The Christian rights under is, is undertaking a fourth generation war against the federal government and the Democratic Party. It's waged at the level of moral conflict. You have to have a moral argument for the U.S. Constitution. You have to have a moral argument for the Democratic Party. You have to have a moral argument for the federal government. You have to be able to articulate the values and norms of that social political order in a moral context and raise the question of what exactly is MAGA and Trump and the Christian right trying to do morally. They are immoral and show that they're immoral. Use moral language against them. You have to engage them on that level. You have to recognize the, as you said before, the the extra, the additional layers of warfare being the the sort of informational and moral layers of warfare. Yeah, I, I mean, I would tell them to read uh, George Lakoff, you know, and how yeah. to respond, right. you know, with truth sandwiches, um, how to use moral language, understanding that human beings have a conservative sort of brain and a liberal brain all mixed together. And how do you use language to um, to highlight, to press the button that that gives them, you know, the, their operational liberals? Like, you know, you know, I don't know if I can swear on your show, but I won't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I used to tell people, you know, these conservatives, they want limited government. So why don't you stand up in a meeting and say, okay, who wants to have rat feces in the baby food? Mm-hmm. No. You don't want rat feces in your baby food? Oh, so you do want food inspectors. You do want the FDA to look at food. Oh, who wants lead poisoning and paint? Oh, so you do want OSHA to do something. Who wants who wants carcinogenic stuff in your water you drink? Oh, you do want the EPA to regulate this stuff. Is bring it down to the concrete level. The, 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 the conservatives always argue at the level of freedom. You know, we're for freedom, we're for liberty, you know, the overbearing, overreaching, overarching government. Democrats ought to bring it down to the the level of where people actually live and operate, where they actually move through reality. What do you want in your air? What do you want in your water? What do you want in your uh, 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 soil? You know, things like that. Don't you want to have clean water for your babies? Don't you want clean food for your infants? Don't you want this? And that articulated that these guys really are not for freedom. They are not for freedom. And then I think also there's a book written by a Finnish woman, uh, The I think it's called The Nordic Theory of Love. And what it basically is arguing is that, and I lived in Finland for five years. So I was married to a Finnish woman for like 18 years. I lived in Finland for five. And the idea of this Nordic theory of love is that the state, basically, you know, we're giving money, is you're giving money to individuals to produce strong individuals who can cope with a ruthless capitalist economy. And when you have strong individuals, they can come together to form strong families and strong communities. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if, if people are not worried about their health care, you can change jobs. 
you can quit your job, start another business, become an entrepreneur, because you're not worried about losing your health care because your health care is tied to your job. So it's also the idea of universal rights. So in Finland, when you have a mother gives birth, the state sends them a, a um, uh, an infant package, whatever you would call it, you know, uh, diapers and pampers and cleaning things and whatever. Everybody gets it. It doesn't matter if you're the head of, of Nokia or an unemployed mother. Everybody gets the same package. It's a universal package. Nobody complains. Everybody gets it. That's why I get irritated with Hillary Clinton when she goes, well, we don't want to pay for, you know, why should a millionaire's child get free college education? Because a lot of poor, white, black, Hispanic, and Asian kids are going to get a free education. That's why. That's good. I feel as if the same way in which the Republicans have become a party that talks about freedom but isn't actually about that. Uh, the left ha has so much of their rhetoric is about um, minorities of all sorts. And yet, at the end of the day, they've kind of let the class issue, which is which is the one that really affects minorities the most, slide away. And it, this these these identitarian politics uh, seems to be something that is more the interest of people who have significantly higher incomes, generally speaking. The, the woke progressives are, in my experience, not poor. The woke progressives are usually middle to upper class, college educated, and quite often white. So they're not they're they're not the black, Latino, lower class. This the the Democratic Party seems to just have and this used to be the strength of their base, right? And they've walked away from it in a sense. Catastrophic, yeah. catastrophic tactical error, I think, that is going to cost them a lot. Then again, I, both parties are making catastrophic errors at this point, so I'm not really sure. If they're both they're both diving to the bottom really fast, I'm not sure who's going to hit it first and the other one's going to win. <laughs> like maybe this is maybe this is the moment where a third party emerges. I don't know, but um, you know, I've been on Twitter and I've been defending Biden, and I think Biden, you know, kind of gets it. You know, you understand that you really have to affect people. You know, I always thought, you know, like an apolitical Marcus, you have to talk about issues that people talk about around the kitchen table. I grew up with politics around the kitchen table. Now, my parents were conservative as all get out. My mom and dad were Goldwaterites. Okay. They were Goldwaterites. When Goldwater lost in his, you know, uh, landslide defeat, you know, my parents were crying on election day, right? I was happy. I was for LBJ. <laughs> I, was for L I was for LBJ. Um, but my family used to have these, you know, kitchen table fights. My uncle, Carl, was a bus driver in New York, working class guy, mm -hmm. right? And he was, he was a strong Democrat, right? Okay. And they would come over, they would come over to the house and they'd start arguing. My dad would call FDR a, a communist, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and my uncle Carl would be defending Roosevelt, you know, all, all and I would listen to these arguments. I was like a kid. And I'm yeah. listening to these arguments and going, I think I think Uncle Carl's getting the better. That's what I'm <laughs> <laughs> But, but it, you know, you, you talk about issues that, that you can understand around the kitchen table. Like mm -hmm. what is this gonna do for the family budget? What is this gonna do for you know for the kid? You know, my dad, you know, it's really funny. My dad is like conservative as you can get, right? So one day I'm on the phone with him. I said, hey, dad, you know, I just turned 65, right? I'm getting on Medicare, right? 
So I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, you've been on Medicare a long time. You know, you like Medicare? He goes, yeah, it's great. I said, you get your own doctor? Yeah. I said, um, did you lose any freedom having Medicare? Goes, oh, no, it's perfect. I said, why don't we have Medicare for all? He goes, well, I'll be socialism. <laughs> 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 so then one time, so I asked my dad, so I have a, a sister who's mentally deficient, right? Um, so he was living in Texas, which has like no social services whatsoever. And he moves to Missouri. So I said, dad, so why did you move from Dallas to Missouri? Like, what's going on? He goes, well, Missouri had more social services for his daughter, right? right. My sister. I said, so you do like taxes and you do like social services. <laughs> no, no, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, no, no, no. I like it when it's for me. <laughs> exactly. So, but, but I think, I think, I think Biden gets it. I think the parts of the Democratic Party get it. Okay. That you have to talk about the issues that are going to affect families in a realistic way, and you have to talk about it. And you also talk about it in a moral way. Mm. You have to address their concerns. You know, and here again, somebody will pull my, somebody will pull my progressive card. You know, throw the red card at me. You know, whatever. But. You know, DeSantis is the governor here, and he doesn't do everything right, believe me. He does some things right, but he, he, he's able to, however imperfectly, tap into the anxiety of middle-class Floridians, right? Mm. I was a parent at one time. I have grown kids, but I had a little girl and a little boy, right, going, going to public schools. And actually, they were going to schools in, in England. And I would have been infuriated if that school was doing something behind my back and wouldn't tell me about that was affecting my kids. I would just be, I would be infuriated. I would be enraged if that was going on. And that's what, that's what the Republican party taps into. Now they do it wrong. Okay. In, in, in like 90% of the way they do it wrong, but they're tapping into a, a personal family relationship that parents aren't going to give up. I see. You know, so control, control of their kids. Right. They don't, the, the way they're going about it is wrong, but what, what they have hit upon that is right or that is effective is that they exactly. understand, talk to families about their families, talk to people about things that they care about, talk to parents about their kids. I mean, all you have to do is look at it and, and like, I, I support gay rights. So let's, let's put, let's put the, you know, the thing out there. I support LGB rights completely. Right. But when it comes to transgender rights, I don't because Parents don't want their girls to be cheated at sports. They don't want boys walking into the little girl's room. They want control over their daughters and sons, that their son doesn't go to school, decide he wants to be Jane instead of Johnny, and the school's not going to tell them about it until it's years later. And what they find, and you can understand the rage about it, what you find is you go, okay, so I want to take my kid to a psychologist. All the psychologists have signed up to the Wattpath nonsense, right? So then you go, well, let me talk to the let me talk to the to the to the, to the supervisor of schools. He's bought into the whole thing. Let me talk to my state representative, who's a Democrat. Well, he's he or she is bought into the whole thing. Let me talk to my representative in Congress. He's bought into the whole thing. Let me talk to the, the you know the president of the United States. He's bought into the whole thing. And it's like nobody in this party will even even listen to you about I want control of my kids until the Republicans come along and say, yeah, we'll give you control of your kids. And then they execute it in ways that are just mind bogglingly bad. Right. But I bet many parents don't care that it may not sure. be executed. Right. Because at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, I'm going to have control of my kids. Right. Fourth generation warfare. And, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. OK. Interesting. So. You know, and, and then again, the left, you know, we've talked about the left having problems. 
the trans desert come along and they go, um, uh, a tra- was it a trans trans woman is a woman, right? I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And so a man a man can can simply declare himself a woman, which means ignore all the biological signs. So here's a political party, and this is where they lose again. I mean, they, they give the, they give the Republicans so much ammunition; it's unbelievable. So here's a party that says on on climate change, which nobody can understand because you have to have about 50 different disciplines running all these different models. Trust the science on climate change, which nobody understands unless you're mm-hmm. a PhD in climate change, climate science, some kind of science. Nobody understands what it is. So they go, trust the scientists on that. Okay, they go, okay, fine. So, so what's a woman? Well, I don't know. Trust the science on that. Like, what? You don't trust the science? You don't trust biology? <laughs> so they get, they, get into these, they, they get into these traps they make for themselves because they, they adopt positions that are idiotic. Yeah, yeah, they, they, I they, know they, that's a bummer. Uh, somebody will take my progressive card away or my democratic card away. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So thank, uh, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating conversation. Appreciate yeah. it. Enjoy your writing. I'm really, really good. Thank you. Thank you for that. That means a lot to hear. And have a wonderful week. And have a happy holiday. Yes, and a happy holiday. Take care, sir. Thank you.